And then there's the hiker that was in Jodelbunk. Is that, that how you say that? Jodelbunk? Ravine? Uh, Jimble, Jimbledunk. <laughs> Jimbledunk. Jimbledunk. Jodelbunk? Yes. Jimbledunk? <laughs> So this is this is a great story. This dude is climbing up that ravine and swears that somebody just pushed him off. A hand came out of the rocks and just pushed him off. Like, ooh, that's pretty damn creepy. So interesting. Well, I guess the the deal with Jimbledunk is that it was so these these three friends were hiking. I think this was in like the eighteen, maybe the early nineteen hundreds or late eighteen hundreds. They were they went hiking around Musilaki. Um, so James, William, and Duncan, mm-hmm. I think, were the three friends, and they went hiking in around Musilaki, and for whatever reason, got lost. And I think I, I have to look at the story, but I was reading it earlier. I think they all ended up disappearing, and there was a search for them. But the theory is is that they also, you know, fell victim to Doc Benton. Mm-hmm. On the uh, on Musilaki, so again, James, William, and Duncan. So it's Jimble Dunk, gotcha. Ravine. Yeah, I think is the. I think that's how the story goes. Huh. Well, if anybody uh, is in there and they happen to see a tall person with a dark cloak um, and a long gray beard, let us know. Maybe we can go look for the guy or look for his cabin. Apparently, his cabin is on the side of the mountain somewhere. So. We should get a group hike together and go find this dude. Oh, you know what? Actually, we got to recut this because it's Jobel Dunk. <laughs> Jobel Dunk. Jobel Dunk. Yeah. So that's so. Do we completely recut this so that I don't look like an idiot, or do we just let it go and I would let use it, this? I would let it go and just live with it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Joe, Joe, William, and Duncan, I guess. So Jobel Dunk Ravine is the name of it, not Jimbel Dunk. <laughs> Jimble Dunk. You know, that's quite a name, though. If if there's one thing that um, we've uh, established is that we cannot pronounce anything related to New Hampshire. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when it comes to Musilaki. Right. Oh, boy. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stomp. Episode 31 there, Stomp. Yeah, hey man, how you been, all right? I've been good, I've been good. Good. I've been hiding, I've been hiding lately. Well, it's funny. It's like we did like what, three or four episodes and then disappeared for a month. Now here we are. It's a, it seems like it's a lifetime. It's, it's just sort of a riot. I can only take you in small doses, I think. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Seriously. Oh. But uh, I did have a, I had a question for you. Um, we're gonna, this, this is the Halloween episode. So hopefully you've, hopefully you're going to put some spooky music behind some oh, of these segments. Sure, so that would be cool, but... Uh, do you have a favorite scary movie? Oh, you know what? Uh, what is my favorite scary? I mean, what is what is a scary movie? Are you talking like uh, like the Jason type of stuff, or like just scary movies in general? I don't know. Like for me, like when I think of scary movies, like a lot of times I end up like going towards like the the slasher gore movies. Like for me, like the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was always like my. My big bugaboo. I was always afraid of that that movie, and it freaked me out. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I would say my favorite modern, like just current 
scary movie would be uh, the Conjuring series, which has been pretty fantastic. Uh, it's about that Catholic couple that do the exorcisms and all that stuff. But if you're talking like an older one, I think um, the one that stands the test of time for me is The Shining, probably. Um, I was never into the like the slasher scary movies. I don't know, but you know the, the movie Seven. Do you remember that movie? Vaguely, yeah, vaguely. Yeah, that was always scary. And then I do think like when I think of scary movies, to me, it's like the 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 crazy unhinged serial killer guy that's going to you know hide you in the basement. So yeah, I think um, <laughs> what is that? What is that movie with uh, Jodie Foster? Silence of the Lambs. Oh, sure. That one to me is always yeah, scary. Like so. the psychodrama. Psychodrama stuff yeah. is fantastic. I love that. So we want to get into this because we got a lot of stuff to cover here. Yeah, but, we do. Um, do you have any sponsor or coffee stuff that you want to uh, want to cover before we get into the show summary? Yeah, let's do that. So for donations on Buy Me a Coffee, we have Jennifer Rooks, who bought us three. Jack Daly bought us three. Mr. C.A.P. Nice. Um Mary B. got five. Stacy Tardiff sent five our way. James from the 46 of 46 podcast <laughs> sent us one. Um, Amy Madden bought us one. Paul and Allie bought us three coffees. Inside the Line Catskills podcast bought us three. That, was, that just came in today. And uh, it's actually sort of funny. He's like, hey, you guys inspired me to start a podcast, and I'm sorry if I'm going to rip off all your material. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's Stash. So that's, uh, we had given him a shout-out a couple of weeks ago. So his show's good. I've been listening to it. Yeah, and, and I got an email, which I, I just want to read briefly. It's... Uh, Quote, just wanted to drop a note to express my appreciation for your podcast. I'm an avid hiker in New Hampshire and have been searching for a podcast related to hiking and search and rescue in the New Hampshire region. Somehow I just found your show the other day and I'm addicted. I've been binging the episodes for the last three days. I'm so grateful for you both. Please keep the episodes coming. Happy hiking, Olivia. So that's pretty cool, huh? Thank you, Olivia. Yeah, that's wicked cool. Yeah. Should we tell her we're both actual, actually just morons that, just, <laughs> that don't know what the hell we're talking about? Or should, should we just let her think we're, we know what we're talking about? Uh, just let the let the, uh, the ruse continue. All right. We'll cut that part <laughs> out then when you edit this. Very cool. Well, thank you for everybody. I feel like we, we might, might be like breaking even on the coffee stuff at this point. So we want to like – we need somebody to donate to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council on behalf of – themselves and then we'll give you like um a commercial or something if you want a business so uh, we, we're still offering that and we'll definitely take other sponsors if anybody's interested yeah and let's not forget um the primary sponsor here at reckless brewing where you'll enjoy the best food craft beer mm, beer and fun just 15 minutes from franconia notch many of the four thousand footers and less than 10 minutes from the infamous five corners Awesome, you know, so we'll talk about beer or no beer in a minute, but um, <laughs> so Stomp, I'm just going to get into the show summary here, so um, have you ever been out hiking in the woods, maybe you were solo and the sun was starting to set and you knew that you were going to have to break out your headlamp, strange feelings start to come over you and you start to think about the noises coming from the dark woods, uh, it's common for even the most experienced hikers to sometimes let that spooky feeling overcome them while they're in the woods of New Hampshire. So tonight we're going to focus on some of the spooky legends and stories that can open the door to that fear that sometimes creeps in. As Halloween approaches, we thought that it would be fun to let that fear creep in a little bit and share some of the stories of ghosts, 
Wood Creatures and Legends of New Hampshire. So before we get into the spooky stuff, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about some recent hikes and some of the early trail builders in the Whites. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Very cool. So Sober October, what uh, what are you not drinking, Stomp? Oh my God, I'm not drinking everything. I'm having a coffee right now and I'm getting amped up for this show. This no, is I a mid-afternoon. What's that? You're looking schvelt. Oh, Isn't you can that see that over the camera? Yeah, a little bit. I think a lot of people have commented. I have lost, no no doubt about it, eight pounds. I can't believe it. I know that's part hydration, like I had mentioned to you the other day on text. But um, yeah, it's unbelievable. I have a lot of energy. I run around here and my wife looks at me like I'm a maniac, like, what the hell's up with you? But, uh, oh man, I, I how about you? I, what's going on with your uh, Sober October? I love it. Uh yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't weighed myself. Yeah, I've been eating like I've been eating like shit. I'll be honest with you, but I mean, I haven't been drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been exercising. I've hit like twenty five, thirty miles a week running, which is pretty standard for me, regardless of of sober October or not. So yeah. I've got some big hikes coming up. So hopefully, I'll lose a little bit of weight. So I'm just trying to stay in shape. Yeah, well, you know what I've done? I, I combined this with. Um I, I killed processed foods, sugars, and I've done the intermittent thing where you stop eating at 9 p.m. and you don't eat until 1 p.m. the next day. And I, I just think the combination has just been like a complete shock to my system, but I, I really feel great. Uh, it's been it's been tough, but hey, getting through it. So you're so you stop eating at nine o'clock. What, right. what time do you go to bed? Uh, like nine oh one. All right, so you're going to bed at nine, and then you wake up, and you're basically just like not. You, are you having coffee or I water do. or anything? Yes, I've been doing black coffee, and then by one okay. o'clock or so, I'd, I'll have a yogurt, a banana, or something like that, and then I'm just um, binging out on a, a really healthy Mediterranean style salad uh, in the afternoon. Yeah, I, I kind of do that too. I mean, yeah. So I'll I typically will go and I'll be in bed by eight thirty nine o'clock, and I'm usually asleep by nine. And then most days I'll get up, run, and then I'll have coffee with a little bit of cream in the coffee, so that's probably not good, and then water. And then if I'm hungry, I'll have like an apple, maybe a little bit of like cheese or um, some crackers or something like that. So not great, but a lot of times like I'll skip it and I won't, I'll, but I'll have a huge lunch yeah. at 12 o'clock. So that's the problem okay. is that then I load up on like a huge lunch. So huh. I don't know. I'm just destined to be a fat fat load, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I mean, the one thing I have noticed, though, to be honest with you, is my energy is not as sharp on the trails. Like some, it's sort of been hit or miss. Like I did north, well, we could talk about these hikes, but I did a hike recently with Nobby and gassed out. And on, on like some of the recent rescues, I'm sort of gassed out. So I think my body's adjusting to the the lack of the carbs and all that business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then some days yeah. I nail it, but otherwise, yeah, I feel pretty good. More energy. Yeah, that's a major. That's a major issue with me. Is if I, I've tried to cut carbs out in the past, and it just doesn't work well. Like I feel like crap running, and like right. I've heard people say, like, "Oh, you got to get over the hump over like a week or something." But I just, mm. I don't know. I just have never been able to get over that hump when it comes to dependency on carbs. So yeah, I don't know if anybody has any advice. Send us some send send us some messages and let us know what what we're missing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But overall, just steadier energy level for sure, which is great. So, yeah. Awesome. So, um, moving on to recent hikes, Tom. So, why don't you go? 
Um, you've hit like some of the premier spots for foliage viewing in the last uh, week or two. So why don't you give us a breakdown of what you've been up to? Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. We, uh, my wife and I, hit a couple places. We did uh, mid sugarloaf, and I I think this was the cream of the crop. We hit it just right, and we didn't bother with the other sugarloaf there. We just went straight to mid early morning. Got there before the traffic showed up, and it was just stunning. The valley, uh, Zealand Valley, there was incredible. Looking north towards uh, Clinton Road was even better. So I think we nailed that, and then we got out, and of course there was like a hundred cars out there. Everybody was just piling in. Yeah, I talked my wife into going to Artist Bluff. I mean, it's like one of my favorite places, but it is a nightmare. And we went during an afternoon, and. No kidding! It was it was like the United Nations. It was hilarious. I, like, it was like every country in the world was represented there, and it was. I mean, I've seen it worse, so I wasn't really disturbed by. It, but my wife was like, "Why the hell did we do this?" And all the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the that middle sugar loaf. I got to say, you know, and I I've been trying to stay off social media. I mostly only just go on like a little bit before work and like a little bit right after work and that's it. But mm. I did go on, I think the 52 with a view page and I went, you know, went on a couple of other hiking pages on Facebook. The pictures coming out of middle Sugarloaf for foliage in the last week and week and a half yeah. have been absolutely unbelievable. It, so right? you guys hit it. Unbelievable. And yeah. for people that are looking to do foliage hikes in, you know, I went high this week. So we'll talk about, I went up on Mount Washington but you really want to go to these low peaks to immerse yourself into the foliage and get as close to it as you can. And I think that's why Middle Sugarloaf is probably probably one of the best places to go for foliage in the whites, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I, I would agree. Everything else seemed to be a little flat for some reason this year. Heard a lot of commentary about that. Not as vivid and bright as prior years. Even at Artist Bluff, it wasn't as dramatic. But Sugarloaf seemed to be a good one. I saw some pictures from Mount Pemi that looked really good, too. Mm. So I don't know what yeah. the deal is there. But, yeah, I mean, overall, though, I think the, if you can go to these low peaks that have, you know, the 360 walk-around view, it, that's that's the way to go. Yeah. And as for, like, non-foliage, I just did the I, – I, I've been out a lot, actually. But the, the notable one was North Tri-Slide. I took Nobby – hikes up and his cousin and we just did the traditional loop up north over the ridge of tri pyramids and then down south tri mm -hmm. and um the bottom half of the north tri slide was an ice skating rink i <laughs> i mean i had my my new boots newish boots on but i couldn't get any traction on the bottom half of that so i was bushwhacking off to the side once you broke through that 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 narrow gully and it broadened out to the wider field um, of ledge, it dried up, which was fine, but it was pretty sketchy, man. And there was a lot of people on that one too, like probably a dozen people or so coming up. So I don't know. Last time I did it, my wife and I were alone up there, but now it's just like a conga line of people going up north dry slide. <laughs> yeah, that that bottom section doesn't get a lot of sun in the morning anyway, so I'm sure that, like the with the cooler weather, like the dew is building up on it or whatever. So, but I know there's that really steep kind of climb there, but I feel like there's like crevices and handholds that you can work with. Yeah. There, but Mhm. Mm yep, there was one moment where this boulder let loose with about the size of a bowling ball and this woman below us batted it away. With her hand, thankfully, because, no, it could have been bad. I mean, 
it, that's my one reservation about doing these things now with so many people on these things. It's like, you know, the etiquette is to never be in a straight line. In some places on these slides, you can't avoid it. So, unfortunately, that stuff lets go and what can you do? You wish for the best, but you got to be careful on these uh, slides these days with the volume. Well, what about you, man? What are you doing? You said you were up on Washington? Yeah, I did Mount Washington, but I'll um, I'll start with before that. I had gone like a three-week period without hiking, so I was kind of jonesing to get out there. And it was like two weekends ago. It was like rainy the whole weekend. And I was looking at the weather, and I was trying to figure out like where there might be an opening. So I decided to go back to – I was going to do the Crawford Mount Resolution, maybe stairs, like grab those three – and my hope was that I was going to hit it right in between when um, the clouds would be rolling out yeah. and maybe I'd get a little bit of a view. So I, it was raining when I got to the trailhead. I just got out, hiked in the rain a little bit, and then I was like, okay, these clouds will move out and I'll get some good views up on Crawford. So I got, I went up Davis Path. Yeah. You know, it's a great hike, and I was. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit of it. Inspired me to want to do a segment here to talk about some of the early trail builders in the white. So we're going to do that next. But went up Davis Path, went up Crawford, sat up there for about a half hour. There was a couple of people that that came by, but it was just completely socked in. Mm-hmm. And I was like hoping that I'd get a little bit of a view. And there was a little bit of a view that that popped up to get to look across the Mount Stairs, but it was mostly just socked in the whole time. So I just bailed on resolution. I was like, I'm happy to get out because I hadn't gone hiking. Uh, but what I did is on the way back down from Crawford, I cut over to the north to explore the ledges. So there's a whole ledge um, system on Crawford mm-hmm. that is towards the north. So I made my way kind of bushwhacking over, not really even bushwhacking, but just cutting over to sections on the on the ledges that you could get sort of a northerly view. And there wasn't much of a view, but I, I went, you know, I don't know, probably halfway across the uh, the cone of the mountain. So the ledges do go pretty far yeah. over there. So that was kind of cool. So I just poked around, spent like maybe an hour just looking at the various different ledges, got down pretty low and then came back up and caught, caught the Davis Path down again. So hmm. there's a lot to explore there. So it got me kind of thinking that in the summertime when there's views – if you go off of the Davis path a little bit and just explore those ledges, there's not a lot of vegetation that you have to worry about. It's mostly just open ledges and scree fields that you can walk along. So there's a lot to explore on Crawford. Hmm. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I've never really uh, been over there, but uh, one of these days. Um, and then last weekend stomp, I did. I was trying to pick out like something cool to do because the weather was going to be good, and I had the full. I had a full day. We had like a wellness day at work, so I took a Friday. Went up to Maine, slept over my in-law's house, and got up early, and then headed into Huntington Ravine. Oh, man, that's awesome. I actually saw your video. I was really impressed. That was great. Yeah, yeah, for the audience. I put together a five-minute video of the lower. So there's a few sketchy sections on Huntington Ravine. So I put together a video of the lowest section, which is just an exposed um, rock um, slab that you have to make your way up. So I'll put that in the show notes so people can check it out. It's like five minutes of me just talking while I'm climbing, and um, I did get a little bit of I got a little bit of blowback on it because I posted in a couple of groups. And one thing I just want to emphasize to anybody that's looking at that video is that that's the first section. There's like three other sections that are kind of sketchy on Huntington, so it's 
it's a well-deserved reputation as being a, a dangerous place. But well, I did. My favorite part uh, was that you did the whole thing with um, just three limbs. <laughs> yeah, no, I was the holding best. the phone with my other one. So uh, you're getting a reputation for doing that with your phone. Like you're up on uh, Table Rock, looking at your phone. You're up Huntington, looking at your phone. I'm telling you, uh, one of these days, man. Oh, I don't want to be one of those people that's like. <laughs> Fell off the mountain doing a selfie. <laughs> uh, it's possible. I promise that will never happen. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I so stop. I left Huntington. I got to Pinkham Notch. Went up, went up Huntington Ravine Trail from Pinkham Notch. Made my way once I cleared the the climb of Huntington. Honestly, like the trickiest part of that that trail is that bottom section, making your way through those boulders and finding the the climb to the headwall. I always get like turned around and lost in that that bottom section there. Huh. Yeah. Again, another place I've never been. Yeah, it's weird. The, the, like, there's no blazes that are marking the trail when you get to like the the boulder entrance that you have to kind of climb through the different boulders. Mm-hmm. And then when you get up on the headwall, the, there's brand new blazes marked up so i don't know why they do that but it's a little bit tricky to follow at the bottom but climbed up huntington went to the alpine garden trail went you know and you lose a little bit of elevation going that way but i i just didn't want to go up nelson crag because it's just it is a grind So, so wait a minute so does that top out at jefferson so huntington tops out at the alpine garden right which is because, oh, I'm thinking of, what is it, Monticello? Uh, or what's the name of the garden that's just south of uh, Jefferson? I don't know. Oh, man. We're going to have to. It's one of the most beautiful places. It was named after Jefferson's garden where he lived uh, back in the day. Um, damn it. Why can't I think of it? Is it does anybody have a, a search device that they have in their pocket? they can look at i don't know if, if only you had something called google <laughs> anyway um so anyways top of huntington alpine garden I trail i believe is the name of it mm-hmm. drops you down a couple hundred feet but basically you just you know you connect with lion's head trail lion's head then connects to tuckerman and then i just went up and mount washington was the usual crowded mess there was a million people in line for the the mount washington sign so i just cut everybody and went up to the, there's like a rock cairn that's like right next to the sign. And I just cut everybody and took a quick picture and nice. then went inside and had some hot dogs, which was fun. True mass hole. <laughs> exactly. So, but I was up top for maybe about a half hour eating. And then I headed down the Crawford path and ran into Mason. Oh, come on. Did you? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was so funny. We had released the podcast that day and then I ran into Steve and Eric and Gwen, and then they were the one other person I forget her name, but it was nice to meet them in person because I had never met Steve in, in person. So they were doing a Prezi Traverse, so they were they were cruising. So I just said hi to them and then let them head on their way, and then cut across. Um, I forget the name of the trail. I can't remember. I came down Crawford, and then it may be the Garden Cutoff or something like that. But I connected with Bootspur, mm-hmm. and then went up to Bootspur. And then I had never, I was redlining a little bit, so I hadn't hit Bootspur before. So I went down Bootspur and back to Pinkham Notch. And mm-hmm. it was an awesome hike. That's cool. Um, 
Did you mention about the uh, pulse oximetry up on Kilimanjaro to Eric? <laughs> That's still a great story. I didn't. I didn't. I was actually going to say to him, I was like, uh, so I heard that, you know, they were going to change the name of Kilimanjaro to Kilimanjaro. <laughs> 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 but um, so, that's good, man. Yeah, that's good. Exactly. Yeah, you exactly. know when Steve no. sent over those pictures, I was looking at that Kilimanjaro picture. You could tell he was in a bad way. Even in that picture, he looks a little off. Like, hmm. Yeah, yeah. You you always need a friend that's gonna, you know, push you across that line of potential death to, to drag <laughs> you up a mountain. So. <laughs> hey, I just uh, searched for that. It is Monticello. So check that out because every spring there's a bloom just at the base of the uh, summer cone for Jefferson. And it's absolutely stunning. I, I happened to hike through that decades ago, just randomly, and I was blown away. And it's, it's called Monticello, named after his homestead back in what Virginia or wherever he lived. So God, pretty cool. Yeah. And, and, and one thing I will remind, so the Alpine Garden on, on Mount Washington is the same way. I think it blooms like twice a year. But one thing I will say is I did notice, and I'm, you know, I'm not a trail cop or anything like that. And I really usually just mind my own business. But there was a fair number of people, especially up top on Mount Washington, because I think what happens is a lot of people drive up or they take the cog up and then they'll, they'll explore a little bit outside of the mountain. Uh-huh. Or outside in the parking lot, there's just a lot of people stepping on alpine vegetation and just like not staying at the trails. So, I think most most people that listen to this show know the deal. But like when you're up top and above tree line, just be careful not to step in that vegetation because, it, in my understanding, and again, I don't know much about this stuff, but like if you step on it, it can you can kill this you know sensitive vegetation and it can take like a hundred years to grow back or it can just never grow back so mm-hmm. just stick to the trails when you're above tree line oh yeah no doubt about it wear and tear is getting really bad out there unfortunately yeah yeah there was like these three ladies that were just like stomping all over the place like off trail on crawford mm-hmm. um right past mount washington and i was kind of like oh man somebody should say something to them but i was like i'm not going to say anything because i'm afraid they'll yell at me <laughs> Oh, so, brother. I, I didn't I didn't think I could take them in a fight, so I was like, I'm moving on. <laughs> well, it's the thought that counts. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? Yeah, yeah. But that that Crawford hike did get me thinking stop, so I want to do a quick segment on I wanted to get your opinion on like these early trail builders. So I was by myself on both these hikes, so I did them solo. Matter of fact, both hikes, I didn't see anybody really. So those are two good hikes to, other than obviously Huntington when I was on Mount Washington, but going down Bootsburg, I didn't see really anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got me thinking as I was going up Davis Path to Crawford. So Crawford Path is the oldest trail in the Whites. Davis Path, which goes from Crawford um, Notch, all the way up to isolation and then to Mount Washington is like this one of the early trails, like the second or third trail. I think the other trail that they built up was Mount Willard. So the Crawford family was basically had moved into the notch with the idea that they would be innkeepers and guides and they had to figure out ways to attract people to the whites. So one of the first things they had to do was get these trails built up. Mm-hmm. So Abel Crawford was like the the main guy that built Crawford Path up to Mount Pierce. And then 
Nathaniel Davis was his son-in-law, so he married into the family. He was the one that built the Davis Path. And I guess the Davis path was pretty rough for a long time. And he originally built it with the idea that, yeah, he would would have tourists come up there. But what they found out was they built the Mount Willard Trail. And obviously the tourists are like, yeah, I'll do the Mount Willard Trail because there's way more bang for your buck because it's a short hike. Hmm. It's amazing views. And, you know, why am I going to go on Davis Path? But the thing that I was thinking about as I was hiking Davis Path is – Crawford Path makes sense to me because he just basically, I think, followed a drainage most of the way up and kind of kept to the kept to the right side of the drainage. But Davis Path also starts on a drainage, but he pretty much starts leaving the drainage, you know, maybe about a mile, mile and a half up, and starts basically sort of on the shoulder of a ridge line. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking to myself as I was looking at these trails that it seems like what they did with these trails is they weren't doing switchbacks, but they would get low on the shoulder of a ridge line and they would set it up so that they were kind of walking across a section that would fall to the left if you're going up. Mm-hmm. And then to the right, there's always like a climb to it. So my thought is that they were probably building these trails with the idea that they could cut everything off to make the trail and just push it down a hill. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it seems like those trails are like, they go across the contour lines. Like they're always going, you know, up at a steep level, but there's always a big drop on one side. Sure. And I'm guessing that they must have built these things with the idea that like they'll make their way up as best they can, but they really need to have one side where they can drop trees off pretty easily so that they're not lifting them. Yeah. Yeah, and boulders. I, I think it's a function of the uh, the terrain itself. I mean, when you compare it to out west, where there's more like dirt and gravel, um, how the how the hell do you make these switchbacks out here with the boulders and the trees? You, I mean, do you have to reverse engineer it and start at the top and <laughs> build it backwards so that you're not dumping crap on stuff you just cut? Yeah. It just makes sense. I mean, when I bushwhack, it, following the, the contours is generally the easiest way to get through this terrain. Yeah, so they must have done the same thing and sort of like picked out the you know picked out the easiest way to get to the terrain, but also when they're cutting their paths, making sure that they had a pretty steep drop off on one side so that mm. they could easily clear stuff out. That had to be what they were thinking as they were doing these trails, because otherwise, you would try to go on ridge lines or you would try to do switchbacks as best you can. But there's no way to know on a switchback when you're going to go, you know, when you're going to be able to cut back over, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. How do you do recon back in the day, too? It's it's amazing. I don't know. I don't know. And I was reading a little bit about the Crawford path. And they, these paths were not, oh, these trails were not, they were basically like if you, probably a lot of the abandoned trails that you found, Stomp, mm. they're probably the equivalent of that, if even the, oh, you know, sure. It would be like enough for like one person to walk by. And what, what Abel Crawford used to do, he built like a lean-to hut, like halfway. My guess is he probably mm-hmm. built that hut somewhere around where the Mizpah cutoff path, you know, probably in that junction somewhere. Yeah. And he would take people up there and then they would sleep over that night and then they would summit in the morning because these people weren't in shape. They didn't have good clothes or anything like that. So he had to basically bring them halfway up mm-hmm. and then get them to the peak. So he had this like, I guess he just used tree bark and he made this like very primitive lean to that everybody would sleep in halfway up the mountain. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. So, crazy stuff that they used to do, but they were trying to build a tourist attraction to justify getting people from Boston to come up to Crawford Notch to experience the wilderness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it worked. They did a hell of a job. <laughs> right. Yeah, what a life, man. Jeez. Cutting trails your entire life. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like, Stump, if you were dropped back into the, like, 17, 1800s, you would be a much better, like, early trailblazer than me because I don't like to do bushwhacking, but you would be perfect in that role. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I would dig it. Anything else to add about early trail builders? <sighs> no, but just there is a contrast between the trail structure from coast to coast, and that's something that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I have not been out right. west, have you? I have, yeah. I've been to, I've been in the southwest, so I've hiked around Sedona, Page, Arizona, that area, and then I've also been in the Snoqualmie uh, region mm-hmm. of uh, Washington State, and then I've hiked up in the Columbia River Gorge in around by Portland. Yeah. And I think the advantage of the switchbacks as well in those areas is that there's there's in some cases like they don't have to deal with tree line or they have like a very low tree line and they've got a lot of peak that they can they can look at without having to deal with trees so they can easily see what they're dealing with when it comes to building out a, a switchback. Mm-hmm. But in you know New Hampshire, a lot of these mountains they're either below tree line or there's just a little bit of tree line popping up as you get to the peak. So there's no way to know exactly how you would build a trail. But I think in out west, you could easily just sort of find a high spot, look, and say like, okay, this is the obvious way to build a switchback. Mm-hmm. But we can't do that here in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah. Everybody tells me that the. Uh the texture of the ground is just so much softer and gentler too. So anyway, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So uh, you want to get into the spooky stuff now, Stom? Yeah, man. Let's do it. You up first? All right. I'm up first. So uh, so we're moving on to segment two, which is we're calling the spooky New Hampshire. So, so we've got a couple of different things we want to cover as far as creepy places in New Hampshire. But before we get into this, Stomp, I wanted to talk a little bit about human psychology and see if you're interested in this. So, oh, sure. Have you ever heard of something called agent detection? Agent detection. No. So I have this like crazy theory. It's not really crazy theory, but it's, it's a theory that I've read about where when we're born, we're born with like a certain number of like pre-programmed things in our brain. We have got morality. We've got these certain instinctual things that we do as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the examples I'll give you is like almost every little kid, it doesn't matter where you live or whatever, there's young children at a certain age will have a, a very strong sense of trust in adults. And the reason for that, I think, is that over time we've developed this sort of instinct that um, children are trusting of adults because we had to develop that because if children didn't listen to adults when they were young, they would go wandering off in the woods and get eaten by lions. So it was very important to develop sort of that that instinct in children to have trust and to listen to adults so that we would tell them stories about like, you know, don't go in the woods as a boogeyman and they would listen to us, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they sort of develop out of that over time, but that's something that 
across all cultures, children will always sort of listen to adults when it comes to like trusting them a little bit more than the adult would. Mm. Right. So agent detection is just another one of these embedded things that we have. And basically what it is, is it's an inclination for animals and humans to presume the purposeful intervention of a sentient or intelligent agent in situations that may not involve one. And the most simple explanation I can give you is when a deer hears a branch cracking, they're going to run. Right. Mm-hmm. And that instinct is in deers, that instinct is in humans. And in humans, what we tend to do is apply what we call an agent, which is an agent is typically like a, a sentient being or sometimes a supernatural being. So that's why when we're out in the woods and we hear a leaf a leaf move or a branch crack or something like that, like we don't automatically just say it's the wind. A lot of times we'll say it's Bigfoot or it's the boogeyman. And the reason why we've developed this over time is because Our parents. <laughs> well, it's it's been it's developed over time because the um, you know the risk of reacting to an agent is you know if you're if you're a hundred percent wrong, it doesn't really matter because the cost isn't significant to you. But if you're wrong one time, you're going to get killed, right? So. Mm these ancient people that would be living like they would hear a noise and they would always assume that it's either a lion or it's some kind of a god that's going to attack them or whatever and they would run and go to a safe place so Mm -hmm. over time that instinct developed in us and i think a lot of these sort of spooky ghost stories come down to this idea that like we apply this idea that there's supernatural beings to explain things that actually are pretty much explainable by normal um explanations most of the time so most of that's the time. my theory yeah yeah and it's funny because like this agent detection thing has developed and they think that this is basically the driver on what created religion so we created religion with this understanding that like we needed something to explain things you know lightning strikes mm-hmm. things like that that would come down we wouldn't you know we didn't understand that that was sort of a scientific thing we applied that to gods and over time religion sort of developed on its own and you know, it's a pretty easy jump for you to accept that, okay, if there's a religious entity that's out there manipulating things, then it's pretty easy to get people to believe in Bigfoot or zombies or other things. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's my theory. What do you think? Interesting stuff. Well, we, looking through this um, assortment of stories that we're about to dive into, I noticed that some of them have, like, clear-cut, like, evidence but a lot of them don't. So it's almost like folklore, you know? Yeah. You wonder where some of these stories came from. Yeah, exactly. So for me, I always think this stuff is fun. Like, I embrace it. Like, I, I want there to be Bigfoot. I want there to be, like, the wood devils and all that stuff out there. So, uh, But I also, part of me is, is like, let's be realistic about this because people can get out of control with the spooky stuff. Yeah. So. But moving on to the first, the first topic we're gonna we're gonna cover here is the Omni Hotel. Yeah, people know where this is. This is the big giant one that's up on what is it, Route three hundred two? Correct. Yeah, with the gigantic panorama of the presidentials behind it. Beautiful place. Apparently, it's haunted. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? But um, there's been a like sci-fi ghost hunters went into this place and. You know, there's a couple of rooms here. There's, there's like, somebody who died that's known as the Princess. Um, I think she died in, like, 1936, and they say that she... Oh, Carolyn Stickney. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah so, um, but didn't you? You said you had a story about the Omni, right? Well, yeah. Well, I oh, nothing to do with ghosts, but we were married there, my wife and I, and um, we had a room that was two doors down from Carolyn Stickney's room. So <laughs> we were we were aware of this story and. Um, we're definitely looking around for Carolyn, but she never showed up, unfortunately. I was sort of disappointed. There is a, yeah, yeah. There is a story about a jilted bride. Oh, yeah? You, you didn't jilt your bride, right? Uh, no, no. She wouldn't have stuck around. No. Apparently, I didn't. Yeah, I, guess, <laughs> yeah, I guess in the early 1900s, there was a, a husband that had second thoughts. And he left his young bride sitting in a room, and the bride was so distraught that she decided to take her own life. Oh, man. And I guess you know, the legend is is that her spirit roams the resort on the 14th floor. Huh. And she she asked the guests and staff for, for what time it is, So because she's waiting for her groom to return. Oh, man. That sucks. <laughs> oh, boy. I did not see this woman sitting sitting at the edge of my bed either when I was there. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, no. Nope. Do you know? Like, I used to think. Yeah, I heard this from a bunch of different people, and I know it's not true anymore. But like, The Shining mm-hmm. is. I think it was set in Colorado. But like, is there any connection to The Shining and the Omni Hotel? Do you know? I don't believe so. I, I believe that there's a legit um, Grand Hotel actually where the story took place um, out west that that was based on nothing to do with uh, the northeast although I know that King lives out here but he based it on a real place that exists yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. matter of fact there was a uh, I was at the Freiburg Fair last Sunday and Stephen King was there oh really did yeah, you get to yeah, see him so- I didn't get to see him. Um, I hear so Stephen King has a house in Lovell, so which is pretty close to where my in-laws live. It's on Route, you know, Route Five, and he has definitely been known to pop into like there's the bookstore in Bridgeton. I've heard that he goes there occasionally. Obviously, he goes to the Freiburg Fair. There was pictures of him getting uh, getting some food there, and um, he obviously you know famously got hit by a, a van. Well, walking on Route Five, you know, got pretty badly injured. So he's he's definitely around the area. I think he goes between Lovell and I think he's got a place in Augusta and then Florida. He goes to so hmm. he's around. You know, they're filming. Um, speaking of scary movies, Salem's Lot, a remake down in um, in Mass. I did hear that. Yeah. I did hear that. As a matter of fact, one of our so. acquaintances, um, Spoozy, she ran into the actress that's the lead in. Ipswich, Mass. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Salem's Lot. No, that was a great movie. Did you see the original? You know, I I, I can't remember. I think I read the book, but I, it's been a long yeah. time. Okay, great stuff. When the when the vampires yeah. outside the sliding glass door, like, oh my god, I'd never forget that. It's so scary. Oh yeah, vampires freak me out. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, the Omni Hotel is haunted, so you can go check that out. This one here, I was doing a little bit of research. I mean, I always have just joked around about this, like the, and, and, you know, there's one section of this area, this hut that, that always freaks me out, but Lake of the Clouds hut is supposedly haunted. Did you know that? No, no, I did not, but I read the story and it sort of cracked me up. Uh, go ahead, you want to dive into this one? 
Yeah, yeah. And I've always, like, I've been in, so for those that are not familiar, Lake of the Clouds Hut is on, it's up the Yamanusic Ravine Trail, and it's, you know, below Mount Washington. You can see it when you're on the peak, and it's an Appalachian Mountain Club hut. And it has this section called the, I call it the dungeon. I think that's what it's called. Yes. Um, and it's just, it's just sort of this like emergency area where you can sleep if you get stuck up above tree line. And a lot of times it, the door gets closed because it gets frozen shut because water will um, will build up and then you can't open the door or it's a hard time to open the door. But supposedly, aside from that, that dungeon, which is creepy as hell down there, it's I sat down there for about two minutes and then I was like, I'm out of here because it's just gross. Uh, but for years, rumors have circulated, <laughs> exactly. you know, among the hiking community that um, there's a presence that roams the area around the hut and visits those that, you know, stay in there. So um, it's obviously harsh conditions above the tree line. Yeah. Did you read what the presence is? <laughs> it's sort of funny. No. The presence is like a herd of ghosts it's basically the body the spirits of every single hiker that's died in the area so the presence is this big group of ghosts that comes and goes <laughs> oh so that's what they're talking that's about so i hadn't read I, yeah i mean I, I think i had done some research on this so so it's a big gang you know there's a fair number of people that have passed away in that area so it's a little bit creepy yeah so. Good thing, good thing that dog that was like needed a rescue, uh, you know, <laughs> earlier in the summer didn't die there. You'd have a dog added to the spirits. <laughs> oh my God, the presence! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you um have you been in the dungeon underneath Lake of the Clouds? I sure have. Like midwinter, um, sub zero weather, with a whole group of people and um, family. You know, we went up with my wife, my daughter, my wife's family. It was pretty pretty intense. We had a great meal in there and um, fired up the stove. It's a neat place if you can get the door open because midwinter there's um, a shelf of ice that develops and sometimes you can't even get the door open. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, so you guys were able to get the door open though? Yes, yeah. At the time it was fine. It's a neat experience. Great place in the winter if you're in trouble or if you need to just change out of your wet clothes. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't recommend it but I guess if you, if you get a if you got to find a, a way to get out of the shelter, it's 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 an option for you if you're up there. Yeah. And again, I've never seen the presence. Call me a skeptic. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think like if I've ever felt any spookiness. I, I never have. I feel like anytime I'm in that area, I'm like really excited to be above tree line and exhilarated. So I haven't really caught any spooks from that. Hmm. All right. Well, this begs the question, have you ever had an unexplained experience yourself? Like an unexplainable, bizarre experience that has no explanation? Well, so we're going we're gonna to hold that to the end. Okay. But I, did, I do have a little segment here where we're going to pick some of the creepiest places that we've been to in the white. So okay. I'll, I'll cover that cool. when we get to it. So. So the next one, just very quickly, um, there is a covered bridge in Campton called the Blair Covered Bridge, and supposedly, like it's haunted. It's been it's burnt down once or twice. I think somebody drove a truck off of it. So I wanted to at least throw in one covered bridge, which um, apparently this one in Campton is haunted. So be careful if you're driving over it. 
And I do feel like the covered bridge in Jackson is is cursed because that thing gets taken out by trucks at least once every five years. <laughs> yeah, no question. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. So, all right. So, do you want to do Doc Benton, or you want me to do it? Yeah, this this story is a favorite uh, for the Dartmouth College Outing Club. Apparently, they've been telling this story since the twenties. It's like a campfire tale, and uh, they tell it to all the new uh, recruits and all students that come in. But um, Thomas Benton, Benton is a town that's on the what is it, the northwest flank, more or less, of Musalak. And the story begins in this town. And Thomas Benton was the only child of a poor family, and um, apparently he was brilliant, very quiet, but brilliant at a very early age. And um, the village there needed a doctor, so they figured, hey, let's send Tom over to Germany to get him into medical school. So while Tom is over in Germany, he starts to connect with uh, some of his German peers and gets really interested in medicine, science, theology, and the quest for eternal life. And um, he starts diving into old books and... um, this this mentor that he was studying with passed away, leaving all of his arcane books in a locked chest. So apparently Tom gets into the locked chest, and um, who knows what happens from there. But um, uh, when Tom Benton returns to New Hampshire, he establishes a renowned medical practice, marries, has a child, only to be devastated when his wife and child die from contagious disease. And from there, he just you know, disappears into a shack on the side of the mountain and just comes down every now and then to resupply. But then soon enough, people and animals start disappearing. And very oddly, all of the dead animals and people have a small wound behind their ear, like really creepy stuff. The culmination of the story is that one evening, one winter evening in the 1820s, a small girl named Mary did not come inside when called for dinner. So the town went out to look for Mary, and they saw footprints leading up to Musalak. And sure enough, this led right up into Tunnelbrook Ravine, and that's where they saw this dark, shadowy figure with a long gray beard taking Mary up into the mountains. Long story short, uh, the doctor takes Mary up to a high cliff, and Benton thrills Mary to her death <laughs> before disappearing forever. And then there's the hiker that was in Jodelbunk. Is that, that how you say that? Jodelbunk? Ravine? Uh, Jimble, Jimbledunk. <laughs> Jimbledunk. Jimbledunk. Jodelbunk? Yes. Jimbledunk? <laughs> So this is this is a great story. This dude is climbing up that ravine and swears that somebody just pushed him off. A hand came out of the rocks and just pushed him off. Like, ooh, that's pretty damn creepy. So interesting. Well I guess the the deal with Jimbledunk is that it was so these these three friends were hiking, I think this was in like the eighteen oh maybe the early nineteen hundreds or late eighteen hundreds. They were they went hiking around Musalaki. Um, so James, William, and Duncan, mm-hmm. I think, were the three friends, and they went hiking in around Musalaki, and 
for whatever reason got lost. And I think, I, I have to look at the story, but I was reading it earlier. I think they all ended up disappearing and there was a search for them. But the theory is, is that they also, you know, fell victim to Doc Benton mm-hmm. on the, uh, on Musilaki. So again, James, William, and Duncan. So it's Jimble Dunk <laughs> gotcha. Ravine. Yeah, I think is the. I think that's how the story goes. Huh. Well, if anybody uh, is in there and they happen to see a tall person with a dark cloak um, and a long gray beard, let us know. Maybe we can go look for the guy or look for his cabin. Apparently, his cabin is on the side of the mountain somewhere. So we should get a group hike together and go find this dude. Oh, you know what? Actually, we got to recut this because it's Jobel Dunk. <laughs> Jobel Dunk. Jobel Dunk. Yeah. So that's so. Do we completely recut this so that I don't look like an idiot, or do we just let it go and I would let use it, this? I would let it go and just live with it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Joe, Joe, <laughs> William, and Duncan, I guess. So Jobel Dunk Ravine is the name of it, not Jimbel Dunk. <laughs> Jimbel Dunk. Jubal Dunk. You know, so, that's quite a name, though. If, if there's one thing that um, we've uh, established is that we cannot pronounce anything related to New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when it comes to Musilaki. Right. So. Oh, boy. All right, moving on. Uh, See you later, Doc. All right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, next one here is the legend of Goody Cole. So, this is kind of outside the mountains, but I wanted to throw this in just because. It's the only, so the Salem Witch Trials back in the 1600s. So the Eunice Cole, she was a resident of Hampton, which is right in my area, mm-hmm. Hampton, New Hampshire. She was caught up in the witchcraft accusations and, and, and was put to death. And I think a lot of this stuff, like when you really do the research on this, a lot of this was like sort of towny disputes between people that wanted like access to different parts of the you know, land. Some of these folks were widows that... You know, people didn't think that they should be owning property and that they wanted their property and things like that. So I guess Eunice was um, married to this guy, William Cole. Uh, there's no record of whether or not they had any children or anything like that, but they were indentured servants of a, a wealthy merchant, and somehow they you know, ended up in Hampton, New Hampshire, and she was accused of witchcraft three times in her life. So the first time in Boston in 1656, a few townspeople testified against her. She was sent sent to jail for a couple of years, and then when she came out, she was somehow, you know, she was okay for five, six years. Eventually, she was sent back to prison, and then, you know, she must have had a mark against her and eventually she was accused again in 1673 and then again in 1680 and i guess she was never indicted but she was just kept in prison um sounds like she died in prison and was buried in an unmarked grave and they stuck a stake in her i guess to get all the all the ghouls out of her and you know basically i think that the story was picked up sometime in the early 1900s, maybe 1930s or something like that. And they did some research and realized that like this, you know, this woman was kept in prison as a witch for a long time, ended up dying and they, you know, started a society about her. So she's pretty famous. So she's the one and only witch that got busted in New Hampshire. (laughs) Interesting. Yes. Yeah. And then the next one I have here is, this is a great devil monkeys of Danville, New Hampshire. So I love this. <laughs> so we have the wood devils up north. Yep. 
And then, and some people claim that they've seen wood devils in Nashua as well, but those have been in like deserted alleyways. Um, but devil monkeys are described as similar to baboons, but larger, faster, and meaner. And <laughs> I love this. Like, who writes this shit on the internet? So they're described <laughs> as three to eight feet tall, walking on all fours or upright. And they've got large feet, fully haired bodies, and monkey or dog-like faces. And hmm. cryptozoologists have confirmed that the devil monkey is indeed a distinct creature different from its mythical cousins, the chupacabra and Bigfoot. Yeah, so apparently smart. these things are in Danville, New Hampshire, which is actually pretty close to where I live, too. All right. You got to go scope it out and give us some report. Dude, I want to put. I want to get a... a, a, a an octagon fight going between the devil monkey and the wood devils. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Yeah, oh, man. yeah, exactly. All right, so next here we've got the uh, the story of the willies. Yeah. Do you want to cover this one, Stone? Yeah, you bet. Um, we've all heard that phrase, that gave me the willies. Well, apparently it comes from a family that lived in Crawford Notch back in like 1826. And um, it's sort of a sad story. Um, in 1825, Samuel Willie and his family moved into Crawford Notch. He had his wife, five children, and uh, two hired men. I wonder what that means. Um, so they built a house, and apparently this area, we all know it pretty well. If anybody that's been up on uh, Willard looking in, that's, that's the notch there. Um, super prone to heavy storms and water and this and that so you know after a few years of heavy rain uh, tearing down limbs and trees and rock slides and everything else the willies decide to build a cave near their home Um, so long story short there's this massive storm that hits and all of a sudden the willies are like let's get the hell out of our house and let's go to the shelter. So they go to the shelter and wouldn't you know it, there's a massive landslide that destroys the shelter and kills the willies. So there's your macabre story. And boy, that story gives me the willies. Uh, This is a little interesting side story. Apparently back at the house, their Bible was left open to Psalm 18. And I'll just read a couple little ironic points here. The Lord is my rock. Ooh, that sort of hurts. My fortress and my deliverer. Um, And then it goes on a little later here. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountain shook. They trembled because he was angry. It's like, ooh, strange coincidence, eh? Yeah, yeah, and it's like, you know, we talked about the Crawfords earlier. The Willies were another group that had uh, settled here early, and it's just a very rough life to be living in, in this environment when, you know, there wasn't any infrastructure or anything to rely on. You're just basically relying on your large family and, you know, having everybody kind of pull together to survive in these these conditions. I just can't imagine what it must have been like. Mm. Yeah, but the huge irony is that uh, their house survived but their shelter just got destroyed. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, crazy. So um, the last one we've got here that's a little bit spooky is the abandoned town of Livermore. Have you have you explored this place? Yeah, many times. Um, yeah, it's right off of uh, Sawyer 
River Road. I you hit that on the way to the captain. So you can see it to the left down into the valley. There's plenty of foundations that are there and walls left as well. Quite a history here. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. I think it, started, it was established in 1876, and there are about 200 people living there. I mean, it's right off of 302, basically, just mm-hmm. you know, on the approach to uh, Mount, Mount Kerrigan. So it was a pretty busy place for people that were working on the railroads and, and, and the logging industry for probably about 50, 60 years. I mean, like I said, 200 people living there. Mm-hmm. And, I think it, it closed up the last residence left by 1950. So imagine people still around that might have like grown up there or, <clears throat> or lived there. Yeah. Well, I think the thing that, that really killed the town was just the yearly flooding. And even recently, I think we've seen rain and flooding that shut the road down for an entire season because it just destroyed the road. Yeah. I mean, even with the snow in the winter, like... Uh, I mean, I know that they had the trains that were able to push snow and things like that, but I, they just didn't have the same type of equipment that we have nowadays to clear snow off quickly and efficiently. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to imagine, like, if you're living there, it must have been, like, a really harsh in the winter to, to keep things cleared so that you could get in and out of town. Yeah. No, absolutely. Just a just constant struggle trying to live up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's crazy to think that, like, even up until 1950, there were people living in that area. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's it. So that's uh, the the only other thing I wanted to cover on Spooky New Hampshire stomp was, and you would touch on this earlier. What would you say if you had to pick a couple of uh, spots for creepy places in the whites where you've been hiking? What would you What would you pick? Uh, without question, Dicey's Mill, which is one of the trails that leads up to Passaconaway. That is just one of the the weirdest, spookiest places. Um, Every time I've been there, it's just, <clears throat> I've never seen any, you know, devils or anything or any spiritual weird stuff going on in there, but there's just like this <laughs> spooky feeling in there. And uh, my my wife would agree too. She gets the same vibe. I know it used to be a logging camp at some point, so I'm not sure if there's a history there. Yeah, there's something about um, Passa Conway, because I actually had that on my list as well. So Dicey's Mill is... Yeah, I did. I had that on my list because it's it's creepy to me. So, all right. So this runs into. So this comes on the other side of Oliveri and Brook. So I've, I came in. This, Pass Conway spooks me out, and I, you know, hiking on the Oliveri and Brook side, and then coming up to the peak of Pass Conway to me has always been spooky. And in particular, the area that I'm talking about is when you cut over to the Walden Trail. So you get off of... Oh, actually, no. I'm wrong here. So... Yeah, no. I think I'm right, actually. The Walden Trail um, from Square Ledge Trail is what I'm thinking about. And it's, it's just sort of super creepy. And then when you get to actual... The peak of Passa Conway, which is just a circular area inside the woods, it's just super creepy there. It looks like a place where... Um, like the Knights Templar or uh, satanic worshippers would all just sort of meet in the middle of the night to sacrifice somebody. Is this your agent detection kicking in? It is. It is. It's the agent <laughs> detection. And I think the reason why it spooked me out is because I hiked that in, in a rainy, dark, late afternoon hike. Yeah, same and with I was, me, like, dude. Really anxious about like I wanted to get out before it got dark. I just was, and I was by myself. I didn't see a single person the whole day. Mm. 
And I think that it just it got in my head. Yeah, same here. My wife and I did it during our 48 quest, and it was same with us. It was like early winter, cloudy, windy as hell. We got to that big river crossing that's about a mile in or so. She falls in, gets her foot wet, so we're like, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> we didn't even yeah. do it that day. Oh, my God. So funny. Yeah, and I know Paso Conway has like a couple of views and things like that, but it's just like a creepy place to me. I don't know what it is about it, mm, but... Isn't that funny? It creeps me out. Um, so any any other creepy places for you? Duh, that's, I think that's about it. Yeah. I can't think of any offhand, but... Um, I mean, when you're out there bushwhacking and stuff, sometimes you get creeped out, but I think that's just your your environmental awareness kicking in, like just situational awareness. Yeah, yeah. I think the only other thing I had written down here was the ice gulch, which I just sort of felt yep. a little unease when I was in there. It's just such a unique place, and it's just like the – it's got this feeling like the walls are closing in on you a little bit, mm. I think. Yeah. So I just felt like it was cre- – and it's also because – there's like large drops into boulders and it just feels like one of those places where if there was like a, you know, like a, a supernatural clown that was waiting to, <laughs> to suck you down into the, like the, the earth, like it would be a perfect place for them to just grab you by the ankles and just pull you through a couple of like cave systems. So. Yeah. Nobby actually put out a video on that. So that's, that's a great way to get a sense of what this place is like. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like really, um, it has a weird vibe like it's 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 the walls are closing in on you basically because it's just a, a little notch and obviously Mahusik notch is sort of the same way but i don't know something about the ice gulch just felt a lot more remote and primitive to me than Mahusik. Mm. <laughs> well are the listeners scared yet hmm, i don't know i don't know either but uh, hopefully you'll be able to do some editing and put some scary music behind <laughs> some of this stuff <laughs> yeah yeah i will but New Hampshire, New Hampshire definitely has a share of creepy places. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of this stuff is just getting in your head. And, you know, when you're feeling that creepiness, just sort of step back and say, like, okay, I'm just, I'm making this up to, you know, to explain it. But really, it's just like something that's very benign. Mm, yeah. So, all right. So moving on to the next section here. So um, we've got. Recent search and rescue news. Finally. Stump. We, you had kept saying like, you know, oh, don't say it's quiet. Don't say it's quiet because it's been quiet lately. Mm. But we just have an explosion of search and rescue. So we're probably not going to get through all this, but we might as well just um, yeah. plow through it. And I think you've been in, you were involved in a number of a number of these rescues, so you can probably give some some comments. So, do you want to start with the first one? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, it's like August. I think our last mission was like August sixteenth or something, and then nothing for six weeks. And then we started getting calls in. This one here, um, Wednesday, October sixth, coming a uh, hiker coming down Mount Lafayette via the Skookum Chuck Trail, uh, basically uh, slipped and fell, injured or injured their leg. Um, that was. I think that was the first call that broke the the dry spell. And this person was about nine-tenths of a mile away from the trailhead. Um, fishing game just drove us down. They, apparently, there's a there's a shortcut that uh, cuts off that first mile or so. So it really wasn't too bad. It's just super muddy. Skookumchuck is a mud bowl right now. So that was the first one. Got back to the trailhead around 830 and um, was taken to Lincoln Woodstock. Oh, I'm sorry, Littleton Regional Hospital for further treatment. 
Uh, <clears throat> that's the first one. Skookum Chuck, by the way, is just a beautiful, fantastic trail. So I highly recommend yeah, it. Yeah, I got to get on that. Yeah. I got to get on that. I've had, I haven't hiked it yet, <clears throat> so I got to check that out. Let's see. Next, we have some hikers on the Mount Morgan Trail. Uh, October 6th, approximately 10 p.m., 911 received a call for a distressed hiker. Um, after summiting Mount Morgan and returning back down trail, the hiker had difficulty walking and fell several times and was unable to continue. So the wife called 911 and Williams was carried, that was the person's name, was carried and transported by rescuers back to the trailhead parking lot where he was transferred over to Plymouth Ambulance EMS. Um, let's see, what teams were involved here? Let's see, we have... New Hampshire Fishing Game, Holdeneth, Holdeneth, Plymouth Fire Rescue. Okay, so no teams were involved with this one. Just uh, local uh, fire. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of weird that they would be out hiking that late. So it's 10 p.m. They got the call. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit odd. I mean, maybe they were doing a loop where they were starting with Percival first and coming over Morgan, but even then, like that's... Well, this hiker's 75 too, so I mean, that may not mean much, but it's an older individual. Maybe they were moving slow. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, it's not a long hike, so it's kind of interesting that they were out that late. Maybe it's a typo when it meant 10 a.m., but who knows? Mm-hmm. They're usually pretty accurate with those things, so... Now, there's uh, a rescue here on Huntington Ravine, and this was on Thursday, October 7th. Um, a hiker was injured after falling on the Huntington Ravine Trail, another 70-year-old individual from Sudbury, Massachusetts. After the call came in, AMC, Appalachian Mountain Club, and AVSAR, Androscoggin Valley Search and Rescue Team, and conservation officers responded. The hiker was hiking down Huntington Ravine Trail after completing a short hike when they fell and were unable to continue. Uh, the person was placed in the litter and carried down the trail, down Tuckerman Ravine Trail, across Sherbernski Trail, and then ultimately loaded into an ATV, which is always handy, and brought back down to Pinkham Notch by 727 and taken to uh, North Conway. For treatment. Yeah, yeah. And this guy must have been. I, I read. Matter of fact, I was hiking, and I I was I was hiking Huntington at the time, and I actually sat down and was just reading a little bit of news, and I saw this this report. So I must have hiked it the next day. Uh -huh. There is no way that this guy was anywhere close to what you would what people would traditionally think of the Huntington Ravine Trail. So there is a section that's about two miles long that that you hike up Tuckerman, and then you connect with Huntington. And it's maybe about maybe a mile and a half, two miles to get to the the head wall section. So there's no way that this guy was anywhere close to like what we would traditionally think of as the difficult parts of Huntington if the call came in at three o'clock and they got him out of there by like seven thirty or so. He must have been somewhere along the very lower section of Huntington if it if it only took them that long. Because if he was up near like the the real difficult climbing part, like he, he they would have been there forever. Mm. Unless, unless the rescue team's super strong and super fast. <clears throat> gotcha. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Like, where exactly was this? But, uh, okay. So, that's two 70-year-olders. Are you ready for a third? Another one, huh? Okay. Yes. A 71-year-old man uh, with a medical condition, apparently 1.3 miles up 
on the Mount Martha Trail in Twin Mountain. Apparently, just an unknown medical condition kicked in, and rescue personnel from Twin Mountain, fish and game officers responded. Shortly after 1 p.m., they located the individual, and there was a doctor on the scene who was out hiking that day, which is always handy, so that doctor rendered assistance. After a period of time, the person was able to rest and eat and drink some water, and then was able to make his way down the trail under his own power. So that's always a good outcome. And everybody arrived back out around 2.53 p.m. Let's see, Twin Mountain Ambulance personnel did a further assessment, but uh, apparently everything was fine at that point. Yeah, well... Glad that that ended well. What's up with the uh, the the older folks, huh? That's it's good that they're getting out there. Very interesting. I don't know. We got to get Martin back in and and, <laughs> and uh, talk about this. We're, we're killing all these hikers. Tell them to get out there when they were too old. Yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, I, a kink in the theory. But you know, it's I, I guess I'd rather see people you know moving and being you know Martin's point is always like keep moving, do what you can. But I do wonder, you know, does, does the foliage bug hit people and they think, you know, they, they think that they're a little younger or more capable than they really are. Hmm. That's funny. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's get uh, Martin's take on it. Um, yeah. Here's another one. This is this is worth mentioning because um, my mom was out there taking pictures the, the day this happened. This is actually an injured hiker in Crawford Notch. They were on the trestle bridge taking pictures uh, from what my mom tells me, and I'll tell you why. They were uh, about a mile from the train station near the Highland Center, and the hiker, quote-unquote hiker, suffered a serious ankle injury and was unable to walk. And fortunately, the Conway Scenic Railroad happened to be coming by, so the engineer stopped and picked her up and brought her back to, um, let's see, I can't talk today. I don't know what the problem is. Arethusa Falls Trailhead. Um, and then she was taken to Memorial Hospital um, in North Conway. But the back story of this, per my mom, she's giving me the good gossip, was that um, she was reaching out to people after the fact to see if anybody in the area that were taking pictures got a picture of her accident. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Mama Stomp is up there uh, <laughs> getting getting involved. It's you know one thing I have noticed recently is, and again, I don't know if I'm just sucked into these algorithms or whatnot, but I I have started to see like a lot of foliage pictures from those railroad tracks, and yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen as much as I have <clears throat> seen recently on different social media, Instagram, and. Even TikTok has has pulled up a, a few videos, and I'm wondering, you know, is social media attracting people to those tracks, and they're getting in a little over their head? I, I've never been on them, so I have no idea how safe it is. Or I know they're raised up, and you got to be careful, obviously, not to like fall through and break an ankle or something. But yeah. I don't know how dangerous they are. Yeah, yeah, I don't know either. But my mom, my mom was describing it as, you know, if you were a petite woman, you could possibly fall through. Um, <laughs> That sounds fun, huh? Uh, but for the most yeah. part, most people probably wouldn't fit through the, the railroad ties. Yeah. Cool. Well, do you want to do um want to do this next one, Cloudland Falls, and then we'll just cut it and we'll save some. You know, we still have, still have a few more, but for the sake of time, we can we can save those for the next episode. Let's let's do um let's do two more because there's an important one at the very end here that's timely for the season. I think. Okay. Yeah. So go for um, it. Um, 
Yeah, so let me just... Uh, this was October 10th. Um, Pemi got called out to this one, so the team um, had to go up to Cloudland Falls. Uh, basically, a 14-year-old girl was with her family, and if you've seen Cloudland Falls, that's the third fall up. I think it's like 80 feet high, maybe 60 to 80 feet high. Um, the young girl tried to ascend the right side of the falls and apparently made it pretty much to the top and then you know whether she lost her footing or just couldn't continue further long story short she slipped and fell back down to the bottom of the falls and injured um you know um herself let's just say that so we packaged her in a litter and um, had to carry her down. She was fine, um, but we got her out by like 5.35 p.m. I don't know. She's really lucky. I can just say that because that's a hell of a high waterfall. I mean, kids would be kids, and I think she was just being adventurous, but um, I'm just glad that uh, it wasn't a, a worse outcome. It could have been. It absolutely could have been. Yeah, yeah, and I think just for those that people that aren't a hundred percent clear on this, Cloudland Falls is basically what most people think of as falling water. So it's that iconic waterfall on on falling water. Yeah. So I never really even thought to go up on the right side of that. I usually just I feel like I, I stop there, take a picture, have a drink of water, and then that's about it. So. Well, there's no there's no vegetation there. She literally climbed up the ledge of the waterfall. It was completely soaked and wet literally within five feet of the actual water falling, she was on the waterfall. She was on the cliff face trying to climb up it. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do for the gram stomp, I guess, uh, yeah. when you're 14 years old. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> so, yes. So. Here's, um, here's the last one. And the reason I wanted to talk about this one is we are coming up to this, the, um, the changing of the, the time and it's going to be dark out there earlier and stuff like that. So there's an, a few important lessons here. Unprepared hikers on Liberty Springs Trail. At 7.10, October 12th, Fishing Game received a call regarding a pair of hikers who were in distress on Liberty Springs Trail, which is in Lincoln. The hikers had run behind on their planned hike and it became dark and they did not have any lights. So SEALs were sent up the trail to do what they call an escort and to give these people headlamps so that they could find their way out. The situation's only going to get worse over the next few weeks. So people, remember your lights. Don't get stuck out in the dark. These people weren't injured. injured. They were just unprepared. And Fish and Game, due to the unpreparedness, is going to suggest that they bill these people for the need for the rescue. So a couple lessons there. You don't want to get billed for something as simple as bringing a light when it gets dark out. Yeah, and you've been talking, you know, Stomp, you've been talking about this for like the last three or four episodes, honestly. You've been yeah. warning people that it's going to get dark. You know, it's getting cold. It's getting darker early. Uh, so you have to, you got to be prepared. And we're going to be doing a two-parter on winter hiking and you know, gear and, and, and strategies and things like that to dive into. Mm. But before we get into that, you just got to be, you know, aware of what's going to happen with, with the sun going down early. Yeah. And by the way, did you hear, I think, I think this is on your website, right? The Slasher site that somebody did get left behind from that, that Falling Waters bus tour from Boston. Yeah, I, I vaguely saw I saw something about that, and they were calling around trying to get a ride somewhere. Oh and they, I, I can't remember what they had to sleep somewhere shitty, or I can't remember where it was. Oh my god, is that ridiculous? 
Yeah. Well, it's part of the contract. So, <laughs> it is. I mean, and I used to do um, cruises, and you would always like get excited with the idea of like when the when the cruise ships were leaving port, you, everyone would get all excited to see if anybody was going to be left behind. And I never actually saw anybody, but you can go on YouTube to see. <laughs> People, you know, they'll come strolling in like they, some people just don't have any sort of situational awareness or any knowledge of, you know, time or, or their own ability. So it, I'm not surprised that people got left behind on that bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's all we have for rescues, people. Hey, Mike, you want to touch upon your uh, your finish here for your triple crown? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be meeting up on Sunday. Um so it's this weekend, so we're recording a little bit early. So I am going to be finishing up 52 with a view, terrifying 25, and the 4,000-footer list Epic. in that order. So I've got I'm basically I have one left in each list, and I'm going to string together a continuous hike across Mount Pemigewasset and then up the flume slide and then down into Franconia Notch again and then up Cannon. So that will tick off all three lists. So... Going on Sunday morning, leaving Pemigewasset at 6 a.m., and then you're, you're going to meet me with a contingent, I heard. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think we'll we'll join you for that last leg, um, and you, you're going up High Cannon, correct? From Lonesome Lake. Yeah, I don't know the trail names. I'm going to go, like, I'm going to get to Lafayette Campground and then up to Lonesome Lake, and then uh, to the right is High Cannon, right? Yes, and that's the one with the yeah. ladder, which is probably why it's on T25. Exactly. Yeah. So I'll get like that's a an elective on the T twenty five. So I'll do that one as well. And then I don't know about going down. What, would you go down the same way? Yeah. Honestly, you have no really good options. Um, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. I mean, by that time, I'm going to be exhausted. I'll just go whatever. Yeah. Whatever. I mean. Yeah. Uh, I'm not really sure. Depends where the cars are. It's going to be sort of crowded for us uh, trying to get in there. Perhaps. So we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, I mean, you can go down Kinsman Ridge, um, which is an interesting yeah. way down if you want to drop out of, avoid the ladder. But, uh, I mean, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll go down whatever is the, you know, the, the most direct way at that point because it's going to be like a 20-mile day for me. So yeah. I'll just... No kidding, huh? Go down wherever. Um, yeah. But I'm looking forward to it. I was very like... The, the lists are funny, I think people get very focused on them and I used to be very focused on them. And then I, not that I don't care, but I just stopped. I'm looking at this as a, it's just a milestone along the way. There's a lot more hiking to do. There's a lot more exploring to do. There's a lot more learning to do. And, you know, the thing for me is that it's not just collecting peaks. It's been collecting friends, building relationships and, um, you know, keeping uh, sanity in my life through hiking that you know it's 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 a good way to sort of keep track of new new places to visit but i feel like the friends that i've picked up through hiking you know now i have a, a much better resource to get ideas on where to go and you know it's much more about just being with other people and my family and things like that mm-hmm. than it is about just completing a list that'll be fun and i'll post something on social media but like i'll be thinking about more like where's my next hike after this yeah, is your family coming up? Yeah, I think Kristen and my youngest are going to come up, and then they're going to take the tram up and see me up top. And then my oldest, Caroline, is going to hike up with with us. And then 
my middle daughter, I think, is going to work. Okay. So. Well, yeah, looking forward to it. That's going to be great. We'll take some pictures and some video, and we'll throw some confetti. Yeah, <laughs> Leave no trace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll break the sober October rule for the, you know, the peak, but we'll see. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say, Stomp, like I do owe you, you know, on this journey, like I, I do feel like some of the most epic moments where I have been on trail from the Pemi Loop with you and Alvaro mm. to the isolation hike with you and Jimmy Chaga to the adventures that me, you and Chaga and Casey have had. And, you know, I think that you've also sort of kept my eyes open to the fact that it's not just about the list. Like there's a million awesome, cool places that you always talk about. And I think you've, I owe you a lot of a debt of gratitude for, I guess, opening up the, the hiking world to me a lot wider than just like the 4,000 footers. Oh, cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. There's a lot out there. And I'm learning a lot from everybody else. It's just like this uh, community, very knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like I said, like it's the lists are about, you know, picking up peaks. But more importantly, the more you get involved in the community, you're, you're picking up friendships and relationships that, you know, will last your lifetime. Like I was, you know, I was having a great time hiking the other day and then coming across Steve and, and Eric and Gwen and meeting them after seeing them on, you know, social media. And, you know, I knew who they were, but it was just cool to meet them. And those experiences, your, your network just expands over time the more you get out there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good luck. Hope, don't, don't get injured. <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, but next week we'll be back and, you know, we'll do a recap of how that hike went and Stomp, it'll be good to get out with you. It's been a while since I've hiked with you and then we're going to talk about winter hiking for the next couple of episodes. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right. See you later, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Only one hill! Here's Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? Seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.